0: When you term vegan, what you're referring to is a lifestyle that aims to minimize harm to other sentient beings and animals. When you're talking about plant-based diets, there's loads of reasons why people would eat plant-based, and they're not all going to be vegan. In terms of the scientific data, it tends to refer to a way of eating that's almost exclusively fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, herbs, spices, nuts, and seeds. And as long as the vast majority of what you're eating is more of a whole food, plant-based pattern, then you're hopefully going to get those health
1: benefits. That's Dr. Gemma Newman, and this is The Proof Podcast. Hi, friends. Great to be back with you. Hope you are doing well, keeping fit and healthy. And are excited for this episode. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. For new listeners, welcome. Great to have you here with us. I hope this is the first of many times we get a chance to hang out together. By way of background, I'm Simon Hill, qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist and host of this show. You're in my hands for the next little bit. I promise I'll do my best to make sure it's a good use of your time. I think you're really going to love this episode. Dr. Gemma Newman is absolutely brilliant. So please do grab a pen and paper or find a quiet place and get ready for a lot of really practical information that can genuinely help you upgrade your health. Everything from the powerful advantages of eating more plants to a plant-based diet and hormones, what antioxidants are, case studies from Gemma's new book, The Plant-Powered Doctor, navigating dietary changes as a young family, and much more. I am conscious that today's episode is a rather lengthy exchange with lots and lots of information, so I'm going to keep the introduction nice and tight, and you and I, we can catch up for a short debrief on the other side of the conversation at the end. So friends, here we go. It's with great pleasure I bring you Gemma Newman, the plant-powered doctor. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal normal, or optimal. I've checked Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fibre plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emile. Emile is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link, which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Gemma, welcome to the show.
0: Hi Simon. It's good to be here.
1: (laughs) It is such a pleasure to have you. I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time, well before actually you, you had written a book. So it's timely now that your book is out. I I really, really admire what you do, and I know that the listeners are going to, to learn so much from you. So, so thanks for making time for this conversation.
0: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. and I also have been admiring the work that you're doing for a very long time. I really have. I think that the podcast and your upcoming book, I'm sure, are going to be so, so useful, but the podcast has been incredible. So well done. Thank you.
1: Now, your new book, The, the Plant Power Doctor... It's an absolute gem of a book. So firstly, congratulations. Uh, and I know that it's it's only very recently been published, so you may not have yet had a proper chance to sort of reflect since it's been released. But what is it about your book that you're most... Sort of satisfied by or or proud of?
0: Well, it was a great feeling to have it out in the world. And as you say, it's been quite a whirlwind since it was first published. But the thing I'm really most proud of is the idea that I can put something in people's hands that gives them a bit more control over their health destiny. This is something that I've been passionate about for so long. And it's just the idea of thinking, my patients, but not just my patients, anybody from around the world can pick up this book and feel confident that when they read it, they can find out some fantastic information and crucially, they can figure out how to implement it in their lives. So that's what I'm most proud of, the idea that people can then use it to help themselves and then that's a ripple effect that could go on, you know, in so many ways that you can never imagine. So yeah, it's a good feeling.
1: I need to to say something that, Stands out for me after reading the book several times. Now I've, I've flicked through it. Is how how much your approach really resonates with me, and and I imagine will resonate with almost all readers. It's it's this approach which I think is needed now more than ever, and in, in a world where there is a lot of fighting and and diet wars and and conflict around things in nutrition, you bring this very much-needed voice of compassion and I actually found myself nodding along the the entire way through because I just felt it was such an inviting approach. What do you sort of attribute this compassion to?
0: Oh, Simon, thank you. I think it comes from connection because I know from all the years that I've been a doctor and seeing my patients is that if we could only walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, we would have a much greater understanding of where they're coming from and the challenges they have. And, you know, we're all human. We all have emotional needs and we all have challenges. And I think once you recognize that, it makes it easier to try to see things from other people's point of view and you're not going to always agree and that's okay, you don't have to agree about everything but I think for me it just comes down to connection, really understanding our connection not only to each other but to the wider planet as a whole and when I talk about connection I'm also thinking more deeply about connection with the deepest and most authentic parts of ourselves Because that's something that can really get lost, especially in this modern world when there are so many different people and things shouting for our attention. It's the idea of actually deeply connecting with who you are so that you can begin to see what's really important to you and the values that you live by um, that can help you find better health and connection with others.
1: So in your own life, what is it that you do or have done to help you sort of tap into who you are and and what those values are that are meaningful to you and that you want to live by or in accordance with?
0: such a good question. When I was a young girl, I remember my birthdays and... You always get a birthday wish, don't you, when you blow out the candles on your birthday cake. And it it would always be the same. I would blow up my candles and I'd shut my eyes and I would wish for happiness. And it was a strange one because I already felt happy. But it was just, I think, even as a five-year-old, it's kind of like a nod to the understanding that finding joy within was something important and, it, and everything else good could hopefully come from that. I had a curious mind. I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. I like the idea of helping other people. I think most doctors probably have that sense when they go into training. Sometimes cynicism gets in the way after a few years, but I think for me, It's hard to pinpoint, but, you know, there were challenges in my childhood um, and people that were close to me, my father especially, really struggled mentally. And my mum had her own challenges too. You know, we didn't have much in the way of finances growing up, but I did always feel very deeply loved. And I think that helped. I've always just been really interested in people and how they tick and what makes them do the things that they do. Why people do things that that they later regret. I've always been interested in religions as well. I studied religious studies rather than doing the three sciences before I went to med school because I was just fascinated by uh, people's beliefs uh, and what made them decide uh, to live certain ways. And I think that's where the values theme comes from because when I look at religion, I see similar patterns to what I see in in the world of nutrition actually people have very staunch beliefs sometimes they're led by science sometimes they're led by emotion uh, and when it comes to religion I, th- I see that It can be a very unifying force, but it can also be something that can separate people. And so, yeah, I found it fascinating to study what religions had in common, what the overlying themes were, and how those themes could benefit humans. Um, Because we all have this deep sense of longing to connect, whether it's from within or from without. And I think that religion has played a big part in that over the years. And perhaps. In modern times, that's been replaced by other things in some respects. But yeah, thats I guess that's a really wide-ranging answer. I wasn't expecting that question, but I hope it gives you a bit of an insight into the way that I think.
1: No, it was, it, it was nice. It, it, it does speak to the compassion that comes through in your writing and the understanding, which is what I was referring to at the, sort of the start of that question. And I think that sort of philosophy or that way of looking at things is an incredible place to speak from because and not always an easy one because it's easy to sort of get focused on what is the perfect outcome or what do we really passionately feel so strongly about but forget that each human on the other end has their own life experiences and sees the world differently based on the the net sum of these experiences over time. And I'm sure that, that seeing people clinically is, for you, you know, over the last 17 years must be a really good reminder of these differences in people.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. And also in my clinical practice, when I'm talking to patients, the most important thing to do is listen. If I started out my consultation telling them what to do before I've even understood what's important to them, I get nowhere. And, you know, I think that's really important. And it's a life lesson too, of course, but in terms of the consultation and building that patient doctor relationship listening and understanding has got to be top of the list
1: you mentioned just before about you know having the aspirations to to be a doctor from an early age when you were a young girl and before we sort of dive into the whole food plant based approach and and a lot of the nutrition that's in your book i'd like to sort of unravel a little bit about how you ended up here and if we could go back perhaps to your childhood, how would you sort of describe young Gemma and what were your, what were your interests, you know, at that, at that time of your life?
0: <laughs> I was a massive bookworm uh, <laughs> for, for a long time. I was an only child until I was 11. And so I spent most of my childhood reading me and my mum, we were very close and, we did have a very, I suppose you'd call it an unconventional mother-daughter relationship. And I became somewhat of a confidant to her, um, which I think probably gave me a sense of, of significance. And it's interesting now I reflect upon it that I found meaning and purpose through being someone who could listen from that age and that's something that I then chose to do as a career because in my working life I've got nearly 3,000 patients um, that I see. I'm a senior partner of a national health service uh, clinic and you know I spend every day when I'm in clinic um, listening to people every 10 minutes bringing in (laughs) a new set of problems and it's something I actually really enjoy. So I feel that perhaps that's something that drove my sense of identity from a very young age that uh, that role that i played in the family dynamic and how that then translated into the passion for what i chose to do later on because community medicine was something i always had my eye on i just i love the idea of the relationships that could be involved like getting to know families getting to know people and their children and their grandchildren, and being able to make a difference over the course of time. That that became really exciting as an idea, kind of saving lives, but in slow motion. And <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think that's probably partly where it came from. And just the fact that I'm a people person, I do gain energy from being around other people, connecting with them, learning from them. And that's something that you do in clinic. I learn a lot from my patients, I learn a huge amount more than they could probably ever imagine, so for me it's it's also great to have that lifelong learning in terms of people and uh and what they what they do and it's always different. you never know who's going to walk through that door, you never know what they're going to come with, you never know what uh they're going to say and so yeah it's it's exciting for me
1: and what about this idea of of health as a as a as a kid or a teenager and i guess speaking you know looking at your your family in the broader sense of health there did you have any sort of pivotal moments where the importance of health or or the the loss of health affected you in in any sort of way and and perhaps further inspired you to want to pursue this career into helping people maintain their health or if not improve it
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, growing up, I had my grandmother. She was a great influence. She was a GP as well. And that was incredible. She was born in 1920. And the idea of even going to med school was just, you know, unheard of at that time. Um, so she was always a big inspiration from the outset. This the idea that if she can do it, then maybe I could. Then, you know, I had my father and his struggles with his health. And you know, mentally, he really struggled a great deal. And that kind of gave me this slight sense of impotence because I began to realise that you couldn't make someone else feel good if they didn't have it within them to at least have a spark in that direction. And so, you know, as a doctor, it did inform my practice later on because I realized, you know, there is only so much that you can do without there being that reciprocal feeling from the other person that they have that sense that they can make differences in their own lives. So it became important to me to then imbue people with that sense of inspiration that they could make changes that would help them because you can't force someone to feel a certain way or do a certain thing. My grandfather died when I was seven years old of heart disease, and uh, that affected me quite deeply at the time. He was very fit, very healthy. He he dropped dead whilst playing tennis. He was in his early sixties. You don't expect someone so fit and healthy to die so young. And had
1: he had a, a previous heart attack or any sort of known cardiovascular issues?
0: No, nothing. He was absolutely fine one minute, and then the next minute he was gone. And it was a massive heart attack. So that really struck me as well. And it informed me later on, because you mentioned, did I have any of my own health struggles? I I didn't really, except for the fact that I, I knew that when I left medical school, it's quite ironic, because... I probably weighed my heaviest and felt my most tired after graduating from med school. So I thought I had all the tools I needed. I was so enthusiastic. I was going to go and save lives. And then I would finish late night shifts and evening on calls, and I'd get home and I could barely have the energy to eat my dinner. I was just absolutely exhausted. And I realized that I wasn't doing myself any favors because. I just used to just grab whatever was available. You know, there was loads of pizzas in the doctor's mess. There were a load of chocolates on the wards. And I would just grab whatever I could because that's all that was available. And I noticed myself just feeling tired. And I thought, I need to change that. I need to I need to do something to actually be, hopefully, somewhat of an inspiration to help my patients. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to listen to me if they, <laughs> if they see me, you know... Just feeling tired and not being my best and being overweight. And so I decided at that stage that I would look after my health, um, but I hadn't really studied nutrition at that stage. I just had kind of taken in this background hum of, you know, carbs are bad and calories in should be less than calories out. And if you count calories, that's a good way to go. And it's just easy. You just have to move your body. And don't get me wrong, I did get results and I did feel more energized and I was so pleased with the results that I got. However, I still had a raised uh, lipid profile. I still had a raised cholesterol, which I checked, thinking, you know, feeling fairly smug, feeling like, yeah, I've done so well and I'm at the prime of life and I'm so healthy and energised. Let me just get my blood tests checked and then realised, oh, I hadn't done as well as I thought and I hadn't managed to reduce my own risk factors for heart disease. And, you know, unfortunately... I didn't know it back then, but my father was going to also suffer the same fate with heart disease because he died age 59 suddenly um, after a very minor car accident. So it wasn't the accident that actually killed him. It was the heart attack that ensued afterwards. So, you know, I thought at that stage, okay, there's nothing I can do. You know, this, might, this is my genetic destiny i'm I'm eating loads of salads and chicken and fish, and I'm moving my body and I'm a good size and there's nothing else that I could do. I don't smoke, I don't drink, you know, not excessively anyway. So you know, I just had to accept my genetic destiny also I thought, and that's where I think my plant-based journey really began.
1: It's interesting that you say that about accepting your genetic fate because that was the same story as mine um and i think many people would share that out there who have had a certain disease that you know runs in their family and feel a little bit disempowered because they're not fully aware of how much control they do have
0: i think sometimes people just bury their head in the sand because they don't realize how much power they can have over their health and so when they recognize that they're in unhealthy patterns they'd rather just stay in them because it's easier not to really think about it too much and then you know there's no sort of reason to make any changes then because it's not something that you can do anything about now for me I think it's really important not to make people feel bad about the changes that they would benefit from making what really frustrates me in terms of mainstream kind of image and aesthetics is this real emphasis on being really um, skinny and being skinny means that you're healthy because you know as my grandfather proved that's not necessarily the case that you know just because you're thin doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy but at the same time I think it is important to be aware that there are certain ways of living that can really boost our vitality boost our longevity make us feel good you know and hopefully Feel more confident along the way, whatever genetics we've been handed.
1: If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, This has now been made easier by InsideTracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new addition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With InsideTracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire InsideTracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I think in your book, one of the things that I love most and, and makes it quite unique is the, the sort of scattering and sharing of these case studies that you present. And some of these are our friends or or patients and, and of course you you've changed the names and you know having seventeen plus years experience you're bound to to have a few of these stories and it, it it sort of connects the dots between the the data and what we see in the studies and then what you have experienced in real life and one of them that perhaps you can can sort of walk us through is the the case study of I think his name in in the book is Brendan, 37-year-old guy who hit a point in his life where he had a, a serious health issue. Can you share with us that story about Brendan?
0: I'd love to. And... It's interesting because, as you say, uh, sometimes the names have been changed, but sometimes they haven't. Because when the case studies were friends or people that I knew and I asked their permission, they wanted to be able to say that it was them. So, Brendan is Brendan.
1: (laughs) Um, Thank you, Brendan. It's a. A very nice gesture for you to allow Gemma to share your story.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Brendan. I'll make sure he listens to this. So Brendan was 37 and he was on his way to work and one day. And then he had this sort of awkward shortness of breath that he noticed um, on his morning commute. And his first thought was, oh, man, I've got to get more exercise. Like, I've become so unfit. I need to start getting back to the gym. Didn't really think much of it. And then it happened again on his way home that he just had this awkward shortness of breath feeling. And, you know, 37 years old, the last thing your mind's going to jump to is that it's your heart. The next day, he went to work again and he found himself having to sit on the bench with his chest heaving because he was so short of breath. And he thought, this is not right. Something else is going on. So he went to his doctor and his doctor prescribed him an antacid medication and an inhaler to try. I think basically thinking, could this be reflux? Could this be asthma? (laughs) Obviously, the doctor wasn't thinking of heart disease either. Um, he had a normal ECG. So the doctor did an ECG, which was normal. But to be on the safe side, he said, look, let's get you referred for a stress test or an exercise tolerance test. And so he went to get that done. Luckily, it was really fast, thank goodness. He got it done, um, I think, the next day. And he couldn't run. He just could not complete the test. And so they did a nuclear stress test where they used dye to directly measure the blood flow to the heart and see what that was doing. And the doctor's, you know, the doctor's jaw essentially dropped and said, look, we need to get you straight to the emergency department right now. And and why? Why was there such a big rush? Well, one side of the scan was lit up like a Christmas tree and the other side was completely dark. And the doctor explained to Brendan that the reason it was dark is because his entire LAD artery was completely blocked. The left anterior descending is the most important coronary artery to allow blood flow to the heart to keep it pumping. And it's actually commonly known as the widow maker because once that's blocked, it often causes major heart attacks and it may well have been the reason that my own grandfather died as well as my dad potentially as well so Brendan's head was absolutely spinning you know he's 37 years old you just don't expect it he thought my god I could drop dead at any moment so he was rushed to the hospital he had a stent procedure done and you know the pain and the shortness of breath melted away at that point but he was left with a lot of questions because he didn't want to have a heart attack. He didn't want this to happen again. And he thought, what if this stent blocks? You know, what if what if this happens again? There's no reason to suggest it couldn't because I'm 37 now. If I want to live till 80, then this stent's not going to necessarily stop it from happening again at some point. The doctor had told him that a Mediterranean diet might help him a little bit. So he thought, maybe I'll try that. But then he had a, a memory of... A doctor friend who'd actually taken him to see the film Forks Over Knives years before and he'd kind of ignored it and since then he was sitting in his hospital bed and he thought hmm I think I'm gonna watch that movie again. (laughs) So he watched the film and he decided that he would give it a try. And in fact, the chicken dinner that he was served in the hospital bed was the last meat that he ate after that because he bought a Vitamix on his way home and he decided that he was just gonna live a completely plant-based life. Now he started cardiac rehab and he had to do that for three months and It was really challenging for him. You know, he'd go in the room and everybody else in the room was an entire generation older than he was. And he just felt, you know, he felt exhausted. He could barely have the confidence to get on the treadmill but he did it and he gradually built his confidence to the point where he was actually, I think three months later when he completed his cardiac rehab, he'd managed to lose an awful lot of weight. He was much, much more confident with his movement. He was able to run, I think, about five miles by that point. And fast track, three years later, he was able to complete an Ironman competition and also the New York City Marathon And he's doing brilliantly. Um, What a turnaround. It's amazing. And since then, he's also had a beautiful son and he's a very, very proud father.
1: Well, I'm sure that he probably looks back and and thinks that in some ways it's a blessing in disguise.
0: He really does. Yeah, he really does. When I asked him about how he feels about the whole thing, he just says, look, I just couldn't be more grateful for everything because I felt like the person that I knew from when I was much younger was coming back. He felt like he was not only, you know, able to achieve athletic ability, but get his health back again. But also he had more of an understanding of the mind-body connection and he just felt so good in himself as well. So yeah, he was, he was very grateful for the whole journey.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine that. It's not, I mean, when you're 37, it's, it's just not on your radar, right? You're not thinking that you're about to have a heart attack most people aren't anyway. Um, But I mean, it it speaks to, I think, all of us. And I know, you know, personally speaking, when I was in my 20s, I very much just felt invincible. And perhaps if someone sent me this podcast uh, to to myself back when I was 20, I probably may not have listened so deeply. Um, And you know, I'd love to be able to go back to my to myself at twenty and say, well, you no, know, these things do matter because, you know, ultimately there are cases like Brendan, but then there are, you know, many cases where, yes, the chronic disease may come to fruition and become, you know, symptomatic when we're 50s or 60s, but the disease is starting to bubble away under the surface a lot earlier. And I think it's kind of it's kind of easier to sort of overlook that and push lifestyle. Um, you know, changes away just because we're we're young and healthy now.
0: So true. Uh, I think we all. F- I mean, I felt like that too. I felt invincible, and I, you know, I think. What's interesting to me is that also since I started clinical practice, there are certain diseases that can affect us in our 20s and 30s that can also be very amenable to lifestyle changes, certain autoimmune diseases, for example. And one of the other case studies I mentioned was a a PhD dietician and researcher who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis aged just 15. And he was able to essentially live a a sort of symptom-free life because of the lifestyle changes that he had made. So it's never too late. But also, it's never too early. And I think that that's a really important message to share. And, you know, for Australians, you know, heart disease, when we get getting back to heart disease that we were just talking about, you know, it's the biggest killer. And in the UK, it is the biggest killer. I know in the US, I think it's cancer now that's the biggest killer. But in the UK and in Australia, heart disease is still the biggest killer. And, you know, when somebody is hospitalized every three minutes here in the UK because of a heart attack, you know, nobody really knows that it's something that they could potentially avoid if only they knew how and stents are great you know like Brendan's story he he really benefited from having that intervention but it's not the whole answer you know there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine I think it was 2007 that showed that angiograms and stents don't prolong life in stable heart disease patients so if you have it you know, after an immediate event, it can be incredible, but it doesn't necessarily prolong lifespan in people who are stable. Whereas, you know, you look at like the InterHeart study, uh, which looked at 30,000 people and it was able to show that lifestyle changes can prevent the vast majority of heart disease, and it is potentially in our hands to do so. And it's not about not dying as well, because we're all going to die, aren't we? (laughs) It's just a matter of how well we live and wanted to make the most out out of the time that we have.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point just there. It's, you know, we can get caught up about extending life and be sort of distracted, I guess, from what matters most around just... You know, quality of, of life and increasing the number of years that we're in good health. You mentioned before. I want I want to come up to the the whole food plant based approach and, and talk about some of the other sort of advantages, the broader advantages of this way of eating. And before you spoke about your personal experience, and as a young doctor and medical student, when you were Trying to increase your own energy and lose a little bit of weight, you you adopted the, the low carbohydrate approach and that was what you knew. And I'm assuming that was what you knew mainly because that's sort of broadly what's popular in in, in sort of magazines and culture and, and whatnot. What was it that that sort of changed your view of nutrition? When did you decide to look at things differently and and started to move towards this whole food plant-based approach?
0: it came from a number of places. So I'd always been interested in helping my patients with their health and, you know, however that looked. And I knew that food played a part in it, but I had previously done things like study cognitive behavioral therapy and solution focused brief therapeutic approaches because I'm really interested in psychology. So that was something that I started the road with. And then it was kind of, by coincidence because uh, my husband was training for a marathon and he really wanted to do well and the problem he had was that he kept on getting injured and inflamed when he was trying to do his training runs and he was getting really frustrated he wanted to see what he could do to stop this from happening he really wanted to do it and so he looked at his running technique and he looked at the footwear that he was using and in the end he thought well what am I eating that might be helping me out here? Because I see people like Rich Roll, when he uh, he, he read his book, um, Finding Ultra. And I see people like uh, Scott Jurek, who wrote Born to Run. They can run three times, four times that distance. They can run miles and miles and miles, and they don't have a problem. What am I doing wrong? So he thought maybe it's the diet. So he decided it was nothing to do with me and he's not a medic (laughs) he decided that he was going to give this whole foods plant-based approach a go and I watched with curiosity and I I wondered if it was going to work I thought that it was unlikely to make that much of a difference because nobody really thinks it's going to be that impactful unless they see it for themselves but it It really did. Um, He stopped getting inflamed and injured. He was able to run as often as he wanted to. He would run marathon distances and come back and look after the kids and be full of energy. And I thought, this is strange. (laughs) And then his next marathon attempt after the first, he was able to run it an hour and 10 minutes faster. Than his first attempt.
1: That's a big improvement.
0: It's it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable improvement. <laughs> so, I decided to do some research. I try, I wanted to try to understand why um, he'd had such profound benefits, you know. And I could see from some of the sports sports literature that it was important for recovery to be able to increase the amount of antioxidants, phytonutrients in your system. But of course, you know, not being a natural athlete myself and, you know, f- for many years avoiding moving my body, especially when I was younger, that was another thing that we could perhaps touch on is I was definitely somebody who preferred to read the books and move. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I would try and avoid sports day and, you know, the sports at my school, every opportunity. But I thought, well, could this apply for chronic disease? Could it? could it apply for heart disease and cancer and all the things that are our biggest killers in the western world and i was very pleasantly surprised to discover that yes it could and it's kind of like the secret that stares you in the face it's The secret that is in plain sight, because the the World Cancer Research Fund tells us that fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes are the absolute cornerstones of a cancer-preventing diet. And the American College of Cardiology tells us that plant-based approaches are absolutely fundamental to a heart disease-preventing diet. And the American College of Clinical Endocrinology tells us that plant-based approaches are absolutely fundamental to preventing type 2 diabetes, not sure why nobody else seems to know this but (laughs) so yeah so i thought well okay let's give this a go and so i secretly tried a plant-based diet and uh my husband didn't really notice he was because he was at that time making his own things for for his training and everything but i started cooking and preparing food that was was plant-based for the whole family and i checked my blood panel And I was really excited to find that uh, everything was in the normal range and that I had managed to reduce my risk factors in a way that i never had before. And it felt great. And also, I noticed that when I went running, I felt great too. So my knee pains, I used to get a lot of knee pains in both of my knees when I ran in my 20s. And that disappeared. And I've never had that since, so... You know, that may be a coincidence, of course, but given the research that we can see around things like inflammatory arthritis, osteoarthritis as well, then I suspect that that those dietary changes have had some important role to play. And, and, you know, it's interesting, like you said before, it's not just anecdotes. You can't place... um, scientific guidelines on anecdotes. And in fact, in the book, I used nearly 600 references to compile the book. And don't worry, they're not all in the book (laughs) because it would take up half of it. I've put them all on my website. But you can actually see if you're a big science geek like me, you can check every sentence and you can go to every chapter and you can see which studies I've referred to and why, if it's something they're interested in. But but the beauty of it, of course, is when it comes to life in your own heart and in your own body uh, and in your own mind. And uh, when you can experience those great benefits, then, you know, it's, there's no going back.
1: I want to define some of the terms and then dig a little bit deeper into the book. But what's interesting is you mentioned then, which I think is a really important point, that you're not sure why this is not common knowledge given that it is within these major guideline papers and they're very much advocating for it. And I wonder if a lot of that comes down to preconceived ideas or our experiences with what we, what we think of when we hear about plant-based diets. We, in, in many ways, it can almost sound like an inconvenient truth because our experience, let's be honest, perhaps when we were kids, and we think of fruits and vegetables and whatnot. It wasn't that glamorous, and we we can't see ourselves eating a diet that contains more of that. And I I see that potentially as sort of speaking to why it's not common knowledge or accepted as common knowledge. And you know the the, the hurdle there is just the education around it. it doesn't need to be boring, and it can actually be very adventurous and, and very interesting and very flavorful. Which you know, thankfully, you've covered and documented very well in your book. But I thought I would just add that because I I think that is, you know, something that's out there. I think it is seen as a bit of an inconvenient truth.
0: (laughs) You're right. You're right. And I felt as though it was too. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) when, when my husband decided to go vegan, I thought, oh no, you know, and what are we going to eat? You know, no one's going to no invite us over for dinner ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everyone goes through that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And back then, you know, I'd already read some of the environmental research. I knew it was a better choice for the environment, but oh, somehow it felt just a bit too pious and too difficult. And, oh, you know, it just, it seemed like too much of an effort. And, and that's another reason why, I think you and I share that passion, Simon, is that you know, we want to make this accessible, easy, delicious, vibrant, abundant, you know, joyful. You know, this is about fun and vitality. So hopefully if people look at the recipes as well as the science, then they can feel really excited about making some changes and hopefully feel really good about it at the same time.
1: Let's define some terms. So the plant, Power Doctor, a simple prescription for a healthy you, the main part of that prescription being a whole foods plant-based approach. I think it would be sort of good for us to define this if, you know, maybe this is the first time that someone has heard that sort of terminology and, and also how this approach is, say, different to, say, a vegan diet because sometimes the two terms can be sort of used interchangeably which inevitably leads to uh, a little bit of confusion.
0: Sure. And it's something that sometimes I think you know a lot of us do actually because I mean just speaking completely you know practically I do define myself now as eating a vegan diet and living a vegan lifestyle. But it's not something that I tell my patients that they have to do because it's quite a different philosophy than just enjoying more whole food plant-based diet. So basically When you use the term vegan, what you're referring to is a lifestyle that aims to minimize harm to other sentient beings and animals. So you're going to not just avoid putting them on your plate, but you're going to avoid using them in other ways in your life as much as you can. And you know, for a lot of vegans, the environmental side of things is important as well. So they may also be looking at avoiding unsustainably sourced palm oil as well, for example, because of the destruction of the rainforests. So when you're vegan, you're really defining your diet by what you don't consume more than what you do. And that means that you can eat pretty much the same kinds of things that you had before, but you could just make vegan versions of them. And so... I mean, thankfully now there's an abundance of choice, especially in London, uh, in parts of the UK. I don't know what it's like in Australia. Perhaps it's uh, very variable there, but you know, there's so. It's
1: pretty similar. It's it's pretty similar to London. Yeah. It's very very mainstream now.
0: Yeah, very mainstream. So you know, you can eat the same kind of western style foods if you want to you know uh, some of the junk food choices you can have and that doesn't necessarily mean that your diet is healthier per se but lots of the data we have on people who've historically eaten a vegan diet shows that it is healthier because they have in the past focused on fruits vegetables whole grains nuts seeds herbs and spices and legumes now It's interesting because if someone says that they're vegan, then eating an animal product would seem almost kind of crazy to them because it's so against the values that they live by. It would be, you know, just as crazy to eat a cow as it would be to eat their family dog. But when you're talking about plant-based diets, there's loads of reasons why people would eat plant-based and they're not all going to be vegan. In fact, there's a broad range of different cuisines that fit very nicely into a plant-based diet. Mediterranean, Asian cuisines, Thai cuisines, African cuisines, Moroccan. You know, There's loads of different kinds of dietary styles that fit predominantly plant-based. When you're talking about whole foods plant-based, in terms of the scientific data, it tends to refer to a way of eating that is almost exclusively fruits, vegetables, whole grains and legumes. Uh, herbs, spices, nuts, and seeds, and water is the main source of hydration. Not to say that everybody has to do that all the time, but that's what it means. Practically speaking, people take on as much or as little of that as they feel suits them. And, you know, there's no sort of science based data that shows that we have to do it 100% at this point. Maybe in, in the future there might be. There was a great study recently comparing whole food, plant based approaches with Mediterranean diets, but. Broadly speaking, as long as the vast majority of what you're eating is more of a whole food plant-based pattern, then you're hopefully going to get those health benefits.
1: Beautifully summarised. And in your book, you summarise everything that you just said then and more around you know this idea of we can't put an exact percentage on it, but it seems to be 85 90% of calories from plants or more. And you also create a nice case for why some people may want to consider going all the way to 100% whole food plant-based. And one of those that really resonated with me and and it's something that in fact is the reason why initially I went 100% was it's just easier. It was just a, a sort of a line, line in the sand and it was less decision-making. And is that something that you speak about with your patients around, you know, making this process easier for them?
0: I do. And it really depends on the person. So... It, For some people, absolute thinking is not going to work. It doesn't suit their psychology and it makes them constantly think about the foods that they feel as though they're excluding, (laughs) unfortunately. But for other people, it makes it a lot easier because like you say, it's a line in the sand it means that you've just decided something, and you don't have to make a new decision with every single meal that you are creating or buying. You know, you, you've made a choice, and then it's easier then to stick to. So everybody's different, but I do think that it, it, for, for a lot of people. It can sometimes be easier to just make a choice, stick with it and see how you feel after a month. And your taste buds as well can really respond after a few weeks to the the foods and the drinks that you're enjoying when your palate shifts. Because I think that when you're making shifts towards foods that are naturally lower in saturated fat, lower in processed sugar and lower in those oils, then you can kind of taste and salt as well (laughs) it changes the palate too you start to notice that things taste different and even foods that you didn't like before you know like broccoli or uh, cruciferous vegetables that have a certain bitterness to them they begin to taste more delicious (laughs) believe it or not (laughs) so yeah I think I think that those are two great reasons to give it a go and you know as I said the broad overview of the evidence does suggest that we can't put an exact finger on how much because um, everybody will have different stress levels, everybody will have different underlying diseases, everybody will have different microbiomes. So it's quite hard to be able to say, well, this is exactly how much you should eat. But as a broad strokes approach, it really does help. And you know, certain people have found that completely eliminating oil has been helpful for things like autoimmune conditions, or if they're suffering from heart disease these some of these people do but again the science doesn't always go in that favor sometimes it's important to include other things like extra virgin olive oil so yeah i think it's hard to be so specific but try it and see what works for you
1: and in terms of the science with regards to these chronic diseases you know if you were to sort of summarize what is so powerful about a whole food Plant-based diet. What are the key features within a whole food plant-based diet that are so health-promoting? And is it a combination of what's in these foods and and what you're removing and minimising, or you know, how do you how do you see it all sort of coming together to give you better health?
0: I see it as a fantastic synergy it 's just like you said you know it 's about the things that you 're not including and the things that you 're including a lot more of. I mean I suppose in reference to things like heart disease we, we focused a lot on heart disease earlier when you 're having a whole food plant based approach, it supports healthy cholesterol levels, it cuts out saturated fat, which we know is correlated with the higher levels of cholesterol, which is increased risk factor for heart disease, the fiber that you 're eating you know it can slow down the absorption of cholesterol and It can also reduce the amount of cholesterol that your liver is producing. The short-chain fatty acids that are made by those fiber-rich foods in your gut might have something to do with that, as well as the phytosterols in the fruits and the vegetables. It can help to lower your blood pressure because of the antioxidants, the vitamins, the minerals, the phytonutrients. Potassium, for example, is one of the main minerals you you can get from things like sweet potatoes and spinach and avocado and black beans bananas these foods are fantastic for regulating heart health magnesium as well is great for heart health uh, brown rice beans nuts you know things like soy products soy milk uh, nut butters like they contain magnesium you know it's it's about all the stuff that you're including it reduces inflammation And it reduces oxidative stress on the body. On average, because of the extra fiber, you're also potentially having a lower body mass index over time. And it can be the beginning of the process of gut healing as well. We know that there's a lot of assaults to our gut and that's something that you've had lots of other guests talking about extensively. And if you can train your gut to be able to tolerate these delicious fiber-rich foods, then they provide the best nutrition for those healthy gut bugs, which can then help to regulate your immune system, help to provide vitamins for you, help to regulate your mood and countless other things. So... Yeah, there's quite a number of benefits.
1: And these changes in biomarkers, you mentioned a lot there, but you mentioned cholesterol and blood pressure and other biomarkers like that. Are you seeing huge changes in your patients when they start to make changes? What are you noticing in your clinic in terms of these objective sort of indicators of health?
0: Well, the most objective indicators that I see improving is blood pressure and um, HbA1c, the average blood sugar. So if I've got diabetic patients, it's lovely to be able to see how they've been able to reduce their average blood sugar readings over... A period of around 12 weeks it's it's really fantastic and it's a lovely objective marker to look at same with blood pressure you know that having a raised blood pressure over time is an important risk factor just as high cholesterol is and it's something that you can see changing within days of a big shift in what they're putting into uh, their mouths and onto their plates i've seen tremendously dramatic improvements in blood pressure i had one gentleman who was coming in blood pressure 180 over 100 millimeters of mercury Mercury. And just within the space of a week, he was able to bring it completely to normal using dietary changes. And I'm not saying that's going to be true for everybody. There's a certain amount of metabolic modulation that occurs over time. But I have a patient in my 80s that told me, you know what, doctor, it's never too late, is it? And I said, no, it's never too late. And he had been able to bring down his blood pressure by a good sort of 30 or 40 points through big shifts in what he was eating and bless him, he was so motivated. You think that when you're in your 80s, you think, well, actually, you know, maybe I'll just eat what I want because I haven't got long left now. But actually, he really enjoyed the foods that he was preparing. He made a little spreadsheet of all the foods that he could have and and make. <laughs> and he was in his 80s and um, he did so, so well. That's pretty adorable. It was. It was. It was really sweet.
1: <laughs> That's sort of another thing that where the nutrition science medical world has kind of been sitting on is that we've known for you know, decades that a vegetarian diet, at least you know, a few decades ago when the DASH diet was developed that was very much developed off the back of noticing vegetarians had lower blood pressure. And you know, for anyone listening who is familiar or maybe not familiar with the DASH diet, the main reason that then the vegetarian diet was sort of modified to include chicken and a few other animal products was because the researchers just thought it would be easier for people to follow. So, yeah, it's just another one of those things that, you know, speaking to what you said earlier, we've been sitting on some of this information for, for quite some time. Okay, that's cool to know that you're seeing this with your patients firsthand. I'm interested and, and it is something else that you've covered in your book and it's, it's actually something that I haven't covered a lot on this show is hormones. You have a, a dedicated section to it which covers uh, fertility and menopause, and period pain and even erections I think are in there, um, sperm counts which are important. Can, can you explain you know what hormones are? And what are the the sort of most important ones to consider that people may have heard of? And, you know, what might we experience if these hormones are out of balance?
0: We have a veritable hormone orchestra going on in our bodies. All the hormones that we have and that we make work in synergy to create a seamless machine. And when one of them kind of goes out of sync, when the conductor plays an off note, then the whole orchestra can go out of tune. And that can sort of apply to our hormones as well. Hormones are incredibly important. We produce them from different places. So our thyroid produces thyroid hormone and ovaries can produce estrogen, testes produce testosterone, just as basic examples. But... We have to have the right balance and sometimes hormonal imbalances can play a part in the development of chronic diseases and our diet can actually play a pretty big role in making sure that that hormonal orchestra stays in tune. Even basic things like constipation i talked about the importance of fiber but it's not just for lowering cholesterol it's not just for avoiding constipation and heart you know diverticulitis it's actually important for our hormonal balance as well because When we poop, we're excreting unwanted hormones, excess hormones that our bodies have created. And when the poo gets stuck, when you're you're not able to actually poop out as much as you need to, then you reabsorb those excess hormones, those unwanted hormones into your system. And it means that you're overexposed to hormones such as estrogen, which can then have an impact on things like your risk of obesity and your risk of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And essentially being overexposed to these things and also you can be overexposed to estrogens from being overweight because you know the fat cells that we have in our body they're not just fat cells they are little you know hormone factories they they do actually produce estrogen hormones and if we can reduce the size of those little hormone factories then we also reduce the amount of estrogen that we become exposed to and I also touch on I think in the book which is important environmental pollutants and how they can affect our hormonal balance. A certain amount of things like plastics and insecticides have been shown to have some hormone mimicking effects and that can have an impact as well on that hormonal balance in our bodies and There is some data to suggest that things like breast cancer can be linked to excess hormone exposure, which we get from things like dairy products, but also from things like phthalates, excess plastics exposures that you get from drinking water from a hot plastic bottle or heating food in the microwave in a plastic container or I mean, interestingly, looking at the research, phthalates can be in our meat products as well, uh, which I think is quite interesting because what we do when we eat meat products is that we, we essentially bioaccumulate anything that's within them as the sort of largest predator, which is how it works You know, in the oceans, it's how it, how it works a lot in the food chain. And so if we're eating those animals that have been exposed to phthalates, then we're also exposed to them through that. So I think in the UK... Chicken, no, fish. Fish in the UK is um, one of the main ways that we can be exposed to phthalates through food and chicken in the US. I don't know what the data is for Australia. Um, but all of these different things can potentially affect how our bodies process hormones um, and have you know, long-term consequences. It's
1: very interesting. The one that I'd like to sort of zoom in a little bit more on there is polycystic ovarian syndrome. I get a few questions on this. Is there any specific data out there around you know certain foods that can help with this, or certain dietary patterns that can help?
0: Yeah, there is. Um, I mean, with polycystic ovaries, you don't necessarily have to be overweight. People, women of a normal body weight can also suffer from polycystic ovaries as well. And what you get with that is underlying insulin resistance and it can lead to less frequent periods as well as a a tendency potentially towards weight gain and excess hair on the body and things like that and it can obviously affect fertility because if you're having less periods then you're also ovulating less as well. One of the main things that you can see with polycystic ovaries is that you have lower levels of something called sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG. And what that is, it's a way for you to be able to control your hormonal exposure. It kind of grabs onto hormones and it can mean that those hormones are less active in your body until you need them. And so if you have polycystic ovaries, you are not only carrying less uh, SHBG, which means that you're overexposed to your body's hormones, but you also have uh, an increased tendency, more receptors for advanced glycation end products ages from food, which means that you're more exposed to oxidative stress in your body as well. So one of the ways that you can actually improve your hormonal balance if you have pcos is ensuring that you have a diet that's very rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes because then studies have shown that that you can actually potentially increase um, your shbg levels or certainly that you have higher shbg levels if you're eating those foods which means that you're more able to control how these hormones are expressed within your body Um, So yeah, I think there's definitely a role to play for a healthy diet in managing polycystic ovaries and also improving insulin resistance. I know that you've talked extensively about diabetes on the podcast and the inherent link between insulin resistance and diabetes type 2. And of course, then how that can also relate to PCOS is that if you're eating foods that can help improve insulin sensitivity, then you're also able to respond to your own insulin better if you have PCOS too.
1: That's really interesting, that crossover between addressing insulin resistance being something that anyone living with diabetes can also benefit from addressing as well, particularly type 2 diabetes. If anyone listening is sort of more interested in understanding, I guess, the deep, deep mechanisms of that, there is a a sort of two-hour conversation with Robbie and Cyrus a little while back from mastering diabetes. So, potentially after this one, go back and, and listen to that. You know, something that, that pops up that I see from, from time to time when it comes to diet and hormones and usually in the context of females is that there seems to be a bit of confusion around fats and healthy hormone production. And sometimes, you know, I see, I notice claims or I'm just sort of tagged into claims around This need for animal fat, you know, or or saturated fats that are found in animal products to produce healthy levels of hormones in females. Have you looked at that sort of body of research? And, you know, in terms of fats and healthy hormone production, what should people be thinking about?
0: I have. And fats are important, but you don't have to look too far into the data to see that the type of fat that you're talking about uh, can really affect whether you need it or not. So with regard to hormone balance, cholesterol is the backbone of our hormones. We use it to make hormones. But do we need to eat cholesterol in order to make hormones no we don't we're pretty good at making our own cholesterol just as all the other animals that have endogenous cholesterol that we then eat are also pretty good at making their own cholesterol so that's an important point to make although cholesterol is the backbone of the hormones that we produce we're able to produce them without the need for consuming cholesterol from other sources when it comes to hormone balance, fats are important and it's also important for women not to be underweight and sometimes you can have a normal body weight and still be at missing periods because your body... Still needs to have a certain fat percentage in order to have periods, and some athletes have this problem where you know they're in the normal body weight, but you know they may be um, really training hard and find that their periods have switched off. And when you are in your fertile years, when you're in the years when you are able to have periods, it's really important that you do aim to look for monthly bleeds because that will show you that your body is in balance. So yes, you can have. Issues with lack of periods because you're not having enough fats and also because you may be overtraining so that your body fat percentage is lower than it should be for normal periods to take place. Things like avocados and flax and chia and you know, walnuts and you know, other forms of nut butters and seeds. These are all incredibly healthy fats that I would encourage everybody to include in abundance. They contain polyunsaturated fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, which we need. And most dietary guidelines agree that About 20 to 30% of the diet can healthily be made up of poofers and moofers, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, and that's really healthy. So yes, we shouldn't be afraid of fat, but we also shouldn't be afraid of not having animal products.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that sometimes someone may have had an experience where they have introduced you know, animal fats and perhaps their period has returned or they've seen some sort of improvement and we can't take that experience away from anyone. I would never do that. But it, in many cases could be that if you're moving from that underweight position and your body doesn't have enough fat and you're introducing calorie-dense foods, as you say, then that could be what is resulting in the improvement. But it's good to know that, that what you're saying is for healthy hormone production for a female there is not a a reliance on animal fats.
0: Correct. There's not a reliance on animal fats for healthy hormones. And as you say, you know, some people will feel better if they change the way that they're eating to include more calorie-dense foods, and that's okay. Everybody's different, but you don't have to, and it's certainly something that won't, in long-term studies, give you a better overall health outcome either.
1: You mentioned in passing before, thyroid. And this is a little bit of a, a side note, but perhaps relevant to some of the listeners, and, and no doubt something that you've come across in your clinic. My mum was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. It was you know around 30 years ago, um, an autoimmune condition where you know body attacks the thyroid gland. You, you know this for the listeners. Uh, it affects the ability to produce the hormones that the thyroid gland would ordinarily produce, and she ended up with hypothyroidism. Uh, and, you know, experienced those sort of common symptoms of, of weight gain and and fatigue and things like that. And she was prescribed with thyroxine, I think that's the name of it, to, to replace the hormone that she was no longer producing, right? And long story short, in the last five years, she has, and this is anecdote, she's transitioned to a plant-based diet and she's now cut her thyroxin medications by 50% and that was based on on her blood test levels and i found that to be really interesting i was wondering if that's something that you have ever seen
0: simon it is interesting and i have seen it but we don't have much data As far as I have seen, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you've seen...
1: I haven't seen anything, no. Yeah,
0: I I haven't seen much data on thyroid health and plant-based diets. I think some of the fear around thyroid health and plant-based diets is around the consumption of things like soy products that could have a potential effect on thyroid function. But... From what I 've read around the data, as long as you have really abundant sources of things like iodine and selenium in your diet, then you're not going to get any issues with regard to um, consuming things like beans, other legumes, soy, which you know are potential kind of iodine blocking foods so just make sure that you're having plenty of things like iodine and selenium in your foods uh, as well as these abundant plant-rich fruits vegetables whole grains and legumes and it can actually be tremendously beneficial as far as i can see from my own experience (laughs) for thyroid health it's something i would love to see more data on though i know that many people have tried things like autoimmune protocols to improve their thyroid function and some people have results some people don't There's no doubt that lifestyle can play a part depending on the cause of the thyroid imbalance. And thyroid hormone is important. It tends to decline with age in a lot of people anyway. So anything that we can do to maximize the hormonal balance that we have and all the things that we've talked about, I have hope that it will also help with thyroid function too, although I'm yet to see the data, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Hopefully in the near future. But until then, it's it's a good anecdote. Absolutely. (laughs) You mentioned before oxidative stress and you've spoken about how these plant foods are so rich in antioxidants. And we sort of hear this a bit and we hear the word antioxidant sort of flown around and um, I'm sure I'm guilty of it many times on this show and I'm, I'm wondering if people fully understand what an antioxidant is. And the reason I ask you this is because I thought that the way you explained it in the book was just perfect. So perhaps you could... Just explain. Oh gosh. You, know, you don't need to do it word for word. Uh, I was
0: going to say, let, let hope I can do it justice.
1: <laughs> but yeah, what are these antioxidant things in our food?
0: Okay, so basically we have oxidation in our body from all sorts of processes that we naturally do. And it happens as the body is metabolizing things. So the oxygen that we breathe, for example, and the cells that are in our bodies that produce energy from it, that all causes oxidative stress, okay? So how did I explain it? Okay, so basically... We've got these little mitochondria inside our cells, which are tiny structures uh, that act like little batteries. They sort of power our cells and they produce energy for us. And in the process of doing that, they release something called free radicals. And these free radicals, they're a bit like like pins in a pinball machine. They kind of bounce around inside the cell and they can cause damage. And that's, that's what you refer to as oxidative stress. And there's nothing that we can do to stop that from happening. It's a normal part of our physiological process and what we can do to try and prevent that from happening is donate electrons because when you donate electrons to these little uh, positively charged ions these like positively charged oxygen species we could call them they need to pair up with a negative charge in order to calm down in order for that pin in the pinball machine to just kind of relax and so you know, our bodies can provide those electrons, they can donate them. But the amazing thing is the foods that we eat can also donate electrons. And so you may have heard people talk about antioxidants in foods and not necessarily know what it means. Well, what it actually means is that these foods are able to donate electrons, essentially, to reduce oxidative stress inside our cells. And that's an incredible thing. And it helps, it helps your body then to maintain balance between the, you know, the free radicals and the oxidative stress and the antioxidants that you are then providing to, to create that that balance and you know if you've got too many free radicals then it can overwhelm your repair process in your body which can cause stress inside the cells and it can also cause premature aging so yeah that's i hopefully did it Beautifully put. It was the
1: it was the the pinball machine.
0: Okay, good.
1: And I think the the sort of thinking in your mind about this pinball that's out of control and just knocking around and thinking of the antioxidant as a way to tame that, I think is you know I read it and it really made sense to me. Speaking of fruits and vegetables and antioxidants, you have an acronym gloves. I don't want to go into the whole acronym because people can read about that, but one of the letters is organic and that brings me to sort of your position on this whole organic versus conventional type conversation and, and you know when this comes up what you would like people to think about.
0: Okay so what's interesting is I actually didn't include my gloves acronym in the book because I couldn't find a good place to put it. <laughs> Um, it didn't quite fit with the conclusion. Um, it didn't quite fit in the intro. So you know, I haven't actually written about it, but I've spoken about it quite a lot. So, <laughs> so um, gloves that stands for gratitude, love, organic vegetables, exercise, and sleep. And it's just a lovely way of thinking about all the main things that are important for healing. And I put gratitude and love at the top because I do believe that they are fundamental and probably most important things and i actually talked a lot more about that on the recent uh feel better live more podcast if you ever want to check that one out but when it comes to organic it is a hugely contentious issue and i did talk about that in the book and i talked about my feelings around uh, conservation agriculture and how that's so important now most people don't have the means the resources or the bandwidth to think a great deal about where their food is coming from and that's okay like you don't have to decide that you're going to become an environmental activist or only ever buy anything from your local farm shop or anything like that. But I do think it's important for us to collectively think about where food is grown and how it's grown. If we're going to sustain an ability to grow food, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. And I think that my nod to organic is also a nod to bringing things back to the natural processes as much as possible. It doesn't always have to be organic. A lot of the studies that we have on the benefits of fruits and vegetables are based on people eating conventionally farmed fruits and vegetables. However, there is some data to suggest that organic foods could have some health benefits. There was a French study, uh, which I read, a Nutrisante study, we can find the links later.
1: We can put them in the show notes. Yeah,
0: but that seemed to show that organic produce did seem to have a benefit with regard to reducing risk of lymphoma in the people in the study. And they also were did their best to try to adjust for confounding factors like socioeconomic status. So that's an important thing to say as well. So what I think is important is to really look at conservation agriculture as a way forward, as a means to providing healthy foods for us uh, in the long term. Because what we're doing with conventional farming at the moment is destroying the topsoil. We're destroying those amazing fungal networks within the soil that help to support the health of the plants that you're growing, help them to communicate with one another, help them to transfer nutrients and minerals between them. And... When you use tillage agriculture where you're scraping away at the topsoil and where you use excess pesticides, what you're doing is you're killing the earthworms, you're killing all of these fungal networks and you're also making the topsoil less rich so that when you have heavy rainfall, a lot of that topsoil will just wash away. And so we're we're facing a very real situation in the next few generations where we, we won't have enough decent soil to grow decent foods uh, with the right amounts of vitamins and minerals that we need for health and of course it's a much broader issue as well around planetary health environmental health how are we going to keep growing food for humans if the vast majority of these amazing natural resources we're using to grow crops that we feed to animals it just is not sustainable so for me I'm really passionate about looking into conservation agriculture and how that can best be supported on a policy level it's hard for individuals to do that but if they're aware of it, then they can push this in, you know, as as an agenda for politicians to look at because we are in a dire situation and we need to make changes on policy level to make sure that the food that we grow is healthy for us and for the future.
1: I love that. And I love the bit about, you know, as a consumer, if we can and we're in a position to, to care about the way that our food is farmed. And I think sometimes in the the local topic i've covered on this show and i think from a, a greenhouse gas point of view it gets sometimes becomes a distraction because the most important thing is what is on your plate being being plants but i think where local becomes really important other than supporting your local community being you know something is great especially now during you know covid but is that if you have that opportunity you can connect with the farms or the people at the markets and you can ask questions and You know, you can find out what kind of practices they're doing and and sort of quickly work out if they are, you know, passionate about improving the health of the soil.
0: Yeah, I think so. And also, as I say, something for policymakers to really take on board. And I don't like the idea of bashing farmers either. They are genuine agricultural superheroes it is really really hard to grow food you know and the advent of pesticides DDT in the US I mean it was a real game changer people were able to grow crops when they never could before and so I understand the appeal uh, and unfortunately here in the UK, that was banned. Uh, I say, unfortunately, it's not for, unfortunate that it was banned. <laughs> it was fortunate that it was banned, but it was banned in nineteen in the nineteen eighties. But it's still being used in a lot of other countries, you know, China and India, and it's really harmful for human health as well as planetary health to use these in excess. Much as it's harmful to overuse antibiotics uh, in the food chain, you know, I'm you know I'm the first to say that I'll, I will prescribe antibiotics if they're needed to help with a, a with an infection, but The vast majority of the antibiotics that we consume come from the the meat that we eat because they're fed to the animals to prevent diseases or to treat diseases that they are suffering from. And it's the same principle with pesticides. You're using them for a specific purpose. They're there to kill bugs. But if you're overusing them, then you're really damaging the, the, the soil and you're also potentially increasing the amount that you're exposed to through the foods that you're eating as well. And which is not good for your gut bugs. Although we don't have definitive evidence to say that they cause harm to humans, apart from some of the studies we talked about, there's no question that they're bound to have an impact on our gut bugs because that's what they're designed for. They're designed to kill bugs.
1: And then I guess there's the worry of... You know, increasing amounts of these sort of antibiotic resistant superbugs as well.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that was my biggest, you know, before this pandemic, that was my biggest worry is the idea of antibiotic resistance and the fact that we won't necessarily be able to perform routine surgery. A woman who's pregnant will genuinely potentially be concerned about going for a cesarean section because, you know, antibiotic resistance has become such a big problem. That's not now, but. I don't see that being something that we can avoid in the not too distant future unless we change our, our farming practices, unless we change our own eating habits. And this is something that people you know, have no idea about, which is something so important, is the idea of antibiotic resistance and future pandemic risk can both be mitigated by eating a more plant-based diet. And this is something that people find really hard to get their heads around or even think about because it's not something that's talked about, but it's really important.
1: Yeah, I guess having gone through this pandemic, maybe now the the world is a little bit more open and receptive to considering threats that could come out of nowhere, so to speak. So hopefully that's an area we see some progression in. I think most people would be really interested to know what a healthy, thriving, plant-powered GP eats. So what does a a day on on your plate look like?
0: Well, it varies. It's really different day to day. At the weekend, I think uh, tomorrow, we'll definitely be having plant-powered pancakes for breakfast. And I often have, I love avocado on toast. It's one of my go-tos. I really enjoy it at the moment it's winter here I know it's summer where you are but I'm really enjoying my hearty meals you know my roast dinners my vegan mac and cheese my shepherd's pie I don't know if you make that in Australia
1: and that one's in your book right
0: yeah the shepherd's pie is in the book and so is the mac and cheese spoiler alert it's not made with cheese um, <laughs> um yeah those are probably my top favorites at the moment oh I'm really into I love my lentil bolognese that's what one of my absolute favourites, really delicious, yummy, hearty food to get me through these cold days.
1: (laughs) And are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker?
0: I drink tea. (laughs) I
1: thought that might be the case.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm a tea drinker, so... Yeah, I've I've got my specialty teas. I like a bit of Earl Grey. I like a bit of Lady Grey. Um, I love Rubos tea, especially in the evenings. I do a mixture of loose leaf Rhubos and mint, which is just my little, my favourite. And I have it with soy milk. So it's not to everyone's taste, but I love it.
1: <laughs> you also have a family, young family, two children, right?
0: Yeah, I have two boys and they're nine and six now.
1: Growing up fast, I'm sure. So you must understand then, I guess, some of the very normal apprehension and fear that inevitably arises when a family, say, considers changing the foods that they're so used to eating and that they have all along thought is the normal way and the healthy way to eat. I'd like to to sort of understand a bit about how you navigated this with your family and what your advice would be to any sort of mothers-to-be or families with young children?
0: I think every family is different. And so what works for me may not work for you, but I found getting the kids involved was fantastic, especially for my older son. Because for him, environmental health and animal compassion are really important. So for him, he was actually quite motivated to make these changes without me really sort of heavily implementing them from my side, which was very handy. But not every child's going to feel that way. And certainly, you know, when you get used to certain tastes, certain textures, certain habits, kids can be really picky. They can be a bit fussy with what they eat sometimes. And especially, you know, when your child has certain special needs Uh, if they have an autistic spectrum disorder where you know they have very specific routines and texture preferences then don't be hard on yourself you know just be really relaxed about it and you don't have to go all the way with making big extensive changes all at once it can just be really gradual based on what your family needs at that time and As I say, I find it really helpful to get them involved, get them to create their own recipes, their own smoothies, which is a really fun thing to do. Kids generally quite like the idea of baking, so that's another way of getting more plant-rich things in, sort of more sneakily. Yesterday I was eating uh, beetroot, in my cake that we've that we had at home so you know it's just little things like that that you know that, that make it exciting that make it fun and you know there is a lot of evidence to say that more fruits and veggies in the diet for kids is a great thing it could potentially have a great impact on reducing risk of things like asthma and eczema reducing the risk of having these seasonal illnesses that kids often get and obviously long term you know you're doing them good because you're setting them up for reducing their risk of things like heart disease and cancer and future which is the top two killers of the western world but don't put too much pressure on yourself just have to do what fits in with your family and go as slow or as fast as you like so yeah there's no there's no rules the only thing i would say is that it would be important to make sure that you're giving your child a multi-vit especially if they are picky eaters because you want to be able to give them a lovely broad range of different fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and If they're not eating a broad range of foods, then you need to make sure that you're aware of that and giving them supplementation as and when it's needed. I do recommend vitamin B12 supplementation for all ages. My supplement recommendations are in the book, but it's also worth noting that because a whole foods plant-based approach is very fiber rich and kids prioritize playing over eating you might find that your kids would rather run off and do their own thing before they've necessarily met their energy requirements so don't be afraid to give them healthy fats you know make sure that you're giving them those nut butters or seed butters you know all the things that have slightly more sort of calorie dense because their priority is not the same as, as adults' priorities, so they'll be probably running off and doing their own thing.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure for some kids, smoothies would probably be a great way to to work in some of those calories.
0: Exactly. Smoothies are the best for that, and you can add in things like, as I say, the nut butters, the seed butters, avocados, and they'll be drinking all those calories, and uh, that will be a good thing because it will taste good it will taste sweet to them as well.
1: Beautifully put. To To sort of close this one out, if someone really likes the sound of of your approach and and wants to begin making changes wants to feel healthier more energetic other than getting your book which i really recommend everyone gets it it truly is a fantastic book based on all of your experience with patients what are the first steps you know the first steps someone that is just thinking about making these changes for the first time that you recommend, and, and how do you want people to sort of be thinking about these changes?
0: I, I do genuinely think that the first step is finding your why. You have to figure out why you want to make a change. And it could be for a health reason. It could be for a different reason. But if you know why you're doing it and keep that in the forefront of your mind, it really does help because motivation can wax and wane. You know, We, we only can stay motivated for a certain period of time before we, we lose that feeling of wanting to keep going. So finding your why is really important and that will be different for everyone. But making sure that when you think about your reasons that they also fit with your values and your values are the things that are important to you at this time. So whether it's family, uh, whether it's uh, fitness, whether it's movement, whether it's connection, whether it's love, whether you're sort of really being driven by gratitude, whatever it is, fun, uh, you know, you can have a think What what values are most important to you at this time in your life. And see how you can fit those values into the food choices that you're making. It's a way of making it easier to shift in terms of making motivation into identity. It's essentially is what you're doing. You're making the initial reasons why you want to make a change into something that becomes deeply important to you so that you can keep going with it, even on the days when you're just not necessarily feeling like making these big steps. So that's number one. Number two is really about making it Easy as well. So think about your favorite meals, your favorite comfort foods, the things that you love, and look at different meal swaps that you can enjoy that give you those same feelings and tastes and textures, but add in um, new things like delicious herbs and spices that you've not tried before. So look up recipes. There's loads in my book, but there's loads of free ones on my website as well, where you can just literally. Find something that you like, make it and feel great about it. And there's no pressure. Like you don't have to make every single meal perfect or every single meal healthy, but at least you can feel great about doing those changes, little bits here and there. And you know what? Most people only make about five or six meals on rotation because, you know, you get into habits of things that you like. So. Once you've made five or six new meals and simple swaps, then you've got a whole new repertoire in your kitchen that you can enjoy. And especially if you can find stuff that if you've got a family, if your kids love it, then that's something that you know that you can make time and again.
1: Outstanding, Gemma. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. That was, that was a masterclass. And um, I feel like... We're all the entire plant-proof community. We're all very lucky to have you here today. So thank you once again for coming. Thank you for sharing. Well done on the book. Uh, Huge congratulations. It's a massive achievement. And, you know, please do come back and speak to me again. You're welcome on the show anytime.
0: Thank you, Simon. I would love to come back. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of all the things that we could chat about, but time was a ticking. So (laughs) it's probably a good time to draw things to a close. But I also just want to say thank you to you. And... I've listened to a lot of your podcasts before. And what I love is your kind approach and how you really do aim to approach the science in a way that is compelling and accessible for people wherever they're at. So I really appreciate your style as well. And I did have a question for you because I haven't seen you talk about this much. You mentioned your family history and how you thought you had a genetic destiny that would lead you to potential disease. What gave you your passion for creating this incredible community, your podcast, your book, the whole lot? What made you do this? You'll
1: have to read my book, won't you?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, friends, there we go. I really, really do love the mix of science, empathy, and compassion that Gemma offers. I think that's what makes a great clinician and a great Spokesperson for health in general. As Gemma alluded to at the end, we only scratched the surface in this one, which I think was the, the perfect way to do things for Gemma's first appearance on the show. The good news is that in the near future, Gemma has promised me to pop back on and we'll do a follow up episode. Where we take a deep dive into the world of hormones and setting up our lifestyles to balance our hormones as best as possible. In the meantime, I do strongly recommend getting a copy of Gemma's book, The Plant Powered Doctor. Don't worry, don't stress. It's not a duplication of my book. The proof is in the plants. They are, in fact, very, very complimentary while we certainly cover some of the same themes, the books are actually very unique. So you'll get different things out of them at the same time as reinforcing a few concepts and principles that are super important to understand. Plus, it's great to hear things from two different people who are deeply passionate about taking the science and making it more accessible. I'll pop a link to both in the show notes for you. All right, that's all from me and all for this episode. As always, an absolute pleasure to be with you. I do have one parting request. If you felt this episode was beneficial, I encourage you to share it with a few of your friends or family that you think could also benefit from listening to it. You never know the spark that someone needs to make big changes to their lifestyle and this may just be it. All right, I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode. In the meantime, I think it's fitting to leave you with one final message. More plants, my friends, more plants.